0: Welcome to Everything STEAM, I'm your host Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This is a special edition of Everything STEAM because if you are familiar with this podcast, we don't normally conduct movie reactions. But after watching Christopher Nolan's production of Oppenheimer, it deserved an exception. So, right after I saw the film, I had a bright idea to reach out to two of my former guests that I specifically knew were itching to watch Oppenheimer, and, you know, I just wanted to see if they wanted to do a reaction episode, and luckily, they both accepted. So, these guests are none other than Dr. Kevin Hickerson and actor and comedian Matthew Broussard. So, if for some reason you're unfamiliar with these two gentlemen and you're new to the podcast kevin is a nuclear physicist specializing in probing the fundamental symmetries of nature using ultra cold neutrons he possesses a bachelor's master's and doctorate in experimental physics from the california institute of technology or caltech and has conducted research at los alamos national laboratory where oppenheimer and his colleagues built gadget or the first nuclear bomb and conducted the famous trinity test and if that wasn't cool enough Kevin has a dozen patents in 3D printing, robotics, tablet computing, machine learning, optics, and solar energy. Now Matt, Matt is a disgraced financial analyst forced into stand-up comedy. The byproduct of a Cajun chemist and a Jewish microbiologist, he holds a degree in computational mathematics that he always manages to bring up and just did and is fully aware how douchey he looks. (laughs) His comedy is heady, self-effacing, and weirdly educational he's performed on The Tonight Show, Conan, Jeff Ross Presents Rose Battle, the Comedy Central Half Hour, and some stuff with MTV2 that he doesn't really want to talk about. You can catch him in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, The League, The Mindy Project, and alongside Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish in the film Here Today. And last but certainly not least, he is the creator of the webcomic and puzzle app Monday Punday. And after the episode, if you want to hear more of Kevin and Matthew on this podcast, I recommend that you check out my episode called Asymmetries of the Universe and Big Numbers, where Kevin and Matt starred in those respectively. So now that you've been introduced to my guests and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into this special edition where we plan to talk about Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer. Enjoy. Kevin, Matt, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while, I guess, between, you know, Matt, Matt was here. What, like a year ago, you and I recorded and then Kevin was just a few episodes ago. But hey, guys, welcome. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me. This is a a very informal, but special edition of the podcast where we're going to be talking about Oppenheimer, the movie. Oppenheimer in, and also some fun sciencey aspects towards the end whatever talking points that we really want to talk about I want to start out the podcast just kind of getting an overall take from all three of us and then and then like I said we can jump into some talking points so Matt please take uh, us away man what'd you think of the movie
1: spoilers ahead I would recommend turning this off now if you haven't watched it because I am not holding <laughs> back um, I really liked it I liked Nolan I liked Tenet the only thing I think you missed on was uh, that third Batman movie, but I really like everything the guy does for the most part. It was really good. The acting was phenomenal. I thought it was shot in a really pretty way. I did not mind the nonlinear storytelling. A lot of people found that annoying. I found it pretty interesting. It created kind of the emotion of it being the through line rather than the events of it being the through line and contrasting how he felt afterwards and before. I thought it was really cool that you never really saw how much it bothered him or why it bothered him. There was speculation into whether was he faking like he felt bad about it or, <laughs> or had conflict about it just for political moves. And we'll never know. And that's also a good lesson in life. We'll never know what really goes on inside people's heads. I love the exaltation of science, but also the uh, showing that scientists are very flawed people at times. And yeah. your monotonic pursuit of science can lead to bad and good things. I also like they didn't make the scientists too charismatic. I really hated that one movie with, I think, Dev Patel, where he played Ramanujan, but he played it like, as, like, a sexy art job. I'm like, nope, incorrect.
2: <laughs> That's funny. I liked I liked that it was the other way around, Matt. What, that <laughs> was, like, it was
1: sex- Yeah. I, yeah, I-, I
2: thought they show him, like, as a player and everything. It was like, that felt more realistic. Like, compared oh, to, like, Big Bang Theory, you know, where they just, like, make scientists all look like we're – mega nerds and stuff i you know it split
1: the difference i, I thought yeah, it did a good go. job of like it wasn't that oh, i'm such a bumbling like he's a charming guy and there were quotes in that movie where i was like there's no way he's that good with words and then i looked at the quotes I'm like oh he actually spoke very well and i liked the third act kind of this big misdirect of the bomb working and hiroshima and nagasaki were simply the end of the second act and the third act the drama actually rested in a clearance uh, FBI clearance meeting and uh, a Senate confirmation hearing. And they made that as exciting as anything else in the movie. So overall, I, I really enjoyed it.
2: I really loved it too, man. I love this movie so much. I loved it before it came out. I also heard people complain about the nonlinear part. And I got to say a funny thing that made it not at all a problem for me. So this might have been part of the way it was a little unfair is I knew who all those people were and when those events were and everything about it already, because that's Mm -hmm. already just part of my life experience. So it didn't feel jarring to me because I knew exactly when those things were happening. So,
1: yeah, if you're a fan of physics or science in general, all of those scientists are, I would say, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, (laughs) where I'm no expert, but just the number of names popped up. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, was Duroc in it?
0: Uh no no. no Rico okay. Fermi was Army, yeah. Fermi yeah. Is,
1: you recognize names even if you're just casually like my my background in science. I just read Wikipedia articles from time to time, but it was still really neat.
2: Oppenheimer did work with Dirac, but he wasn't in the movie. If he was, he was never a major character. But.
1: A fun Dirac fact about Oppenheimer was I don't know if you saw the letter of recommendation Oppenheimer wrote about Feynman. Yep. Can you quote
2: it better than me? Well, I can't quote it exactly from heart, but yeah, he said like. He's a lot like Dirac, but a lot easier to be around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was looking at some other quotes from other famous physicists, like Wolfgang Pauli. actually created like a funny quote, but also like a dig towards uh, Oppenheimer. He's a genius, but he never gets his calculations right or something like
2: that. Okay. But sometimes you forget to carry the Y, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It happens. I mean, other physicists kind of commented like, well, he's an absolute genius. He knows what he's talking about. He has a background in chemistry, He understands metallurgy, obviously, you know, did work in theoretical physics, but he just didn't like to sit down and write long form calculations. And that was really it. But he was like an upfront and absolute genius. Einstein
2: didn't really like to do that either. A lot of people don't realize that, but he made like one numerical solution that he approximated to his own equations, and he basically never solved his own equations. He created this like <laughs> great theory. It took a guy fighting in the middle of a war in World War One to be the yeah. first person to actually bother to solve even the simplest case of his own prediction. So, was that for general relativity? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah I was
0: the- in
1: the movie, and I don't have the historical context on it where. Einstein and Oppenheimer and I were talking about being bad mathematicians, And I found that kind of annoying because people are going to watch that and be like, me too. I'm like, when they say they're bad at math, <laughs> yeah, they're still better than anyone you've ever met has ever met.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, to some degree, though, I mean, one nice thing that appealed to me about Einstein is he was really bad in grade school and I had the exact same problem. I'm not bad at math. Matthew, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about math a lot. I'm pretty good at math, but... In grade school, I was not. And my first grade teacher thought I was a complete failure at math. And Einstein had a really similar problem in childhood. Like he couldn't do arithmetic. He couldn't do basic things like that. He couldn't spell. So I understand what you're saying that you don't get just like, hey, we're all bad about like, good. We're to next size. But still, the point is, if you feel like you have other talents, you shouldn't think that something like that is holding you back early. You shouldn't give up just because of that. Sometimes there's just parts of it that aren't particularly relevant down the road to the harder stuff.
1: So many of the best mathematicians were actually just physicists who had a little bump <laughs> in the road and had to create a new branch of mathematics. I think Einstein falls in that category, Newton falls in that category. I believe Feynman. I, I know he's attributed with Feynman integrals, uh, though I don't know they're actually his creation. He just
2: mm, he did that. Yeah. And he uh, really came up with perturbation theory for quantum electrodynamics and quantum field theory. Mm-hmm. And what's really hilarious is that I know a mathematician who even though this is considered a great achievement and he helped make the most accurate physics theory in in history about 40 decimal places of accuracy is his theory and yet I remember there's this mathematician at Caltech who I won't name but who was just adamant how frustrated he was that
0: like that this perturbation theory wasn't accurately defined not to jump back towards like movie details but I really enjoyed the fact that there was no CGI to this and it's kind of funny like with all the technology that we have it's like oh it's really refreshing to not have CGI. We're talking about like a decade ago or two decades ago, you know, it was like a huge flex to say, oh, we got this many shots of CGI. And it was, I don't know, I thought it was really refreshing.
1: It's pretty, it's a pretty movie. (laughs) I I like everything about it. He probably spent too much money. He probably could have cut corners. and I would say 99.9% of us wouldn't have noticed, but hey, it's a real cinephile's wet dream. It reminds me of a lot, a lot of the more talented scientists in my life. My father kind of, and he's not on that level, but it's just a lot of people who are really good at science and really good at math. Thanks, uh, their talents get wasted <laughs> in uh, management.
2: I just dropped yeah. in to take credit for that.
1: So. Yeah. But the whole, whole thing of him is just being a brilliant scientist who has to become a manager of people. And mm-hmm. that's never as fun as just being the pure science side of it. And um, I have a question for Kevin. Is you understand what these people discovered? I don't. Where does Oppenheimer rank in uh, among the greats in terms of his non-Manhattan Project discoveries and contributions?
2: Uh, pretty good, not not super high, but not mm-hmm. definitely not low. He got a lot of points knocked off of him just for working on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that he was blacklisted by scientists or something, but definitely people were not eager to credit him with anything. You know, and then there were some other circumstantial things, which was mentioned in the movie, which I really like. Like, the fact that he predicted black holes would have been a much bigger deal had it not been published on the day that Poland was invaded and and that his life immediately changed. You know, it wasn't just Mm -hmm. that it happened on that day, but also like he had no opportunity to then go and pursue this or publish it. It was like he immediately that was moved to the side. Wait, he predicted black holes? Yeah. He was the first? Well, there's some subtleties because there's different people who predicted different parts of black holes. So the first person to predict a black hole at all, the guy who solved Schultz. Einstein's field equations first was Schwarzschild, mm-hmm. who was, uh, was fighting radius. in- uh, Is the radius named after him?
0: Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. That was one of the solutions to the Einstein field equations. If you remember back in the movie, one of the students, I think it was his last name was Alvarez or something. I could be wrong by that. But he ran in with the newspaper saying like, hey, they've created the first vision in the lab. And that was when Oppenheimer was like, no way. And he started doing calculations on his blackboard. Right before that, that scene, he was working on black holes. So
2: yeah, yeah just to get back to So Schwarzschild predicted the mathematics of a black hole, but that being the solution, that's that's just saying this is not existing. Oppenheimer showed that a star would have the ability to collapse and turn into one. One of the other components was that people weren't sure if neutron star formation would stop the creation of a black hole. So there's little pieces all along the way. Yeah,
1: so... With uh, Hawking, they had that movie about him, and they credit him with inventing even the notion of a black hole. I'm like, yeah, I that's, don't think that's no, correct. That's not
2: correct. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's yeah. off by bit. He was not alive at the time black holes were <laughs> so. No, th- yeah, but Oppenheimer, I think, was in the running for the Nobel Prize three times, yeah. yep. and one of his students actually won a Nobel Prize, and he was three years younger than uh, Heisenberg. And he followed up a lot of and expanded on a lot of his papers in quantum field theory. I'm pretty sure. Maybe not just quantum field theory, but just like in quantum mechanics.
2: It's funny that Hawking was credited with coming up with black holes, because the thing that Hawking is most famous for is that he proved uh, in theory that black holes aren't permanent. So he almost yeah. uninvented black holes. I hilarious. Yeah, mm-hmm. that they evaporate. So I think it's funny that people gave him credit. He's like, no, he literally undid it. Dude, so he fixed bad. it.
1: <laughs> That's why this movie is so good to me because it doesn't try to like simplify things. Just yeah.
2: They put in a lot of technical terms without it being yeah. sitting there trying to explain to the odds, which would be really boring and weird. They yeah. put in a lot of terms in there that I really liked. That it was really well crafted in terms of the science consulting and stuff like that. Although it it probably makes sense because Kip Thorne did help with this movie also. So and yeah, that was, oh. that was my relativity professor. So yeah, legend.
1: <laughs> the, the one scene I appreciated was the um, they were talking about how to once they've enriched the U two thirty five. How to actually make it explode? How to bombard it, or potentially the uh, plutonium? And then they even brought up hydrogen, which was the uh, or de- 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 deuterium, I think. All is three methods of fission? Are they all fission?
2: Deuterium yeah. is for a hydrogen bomb. Yeah.
0: Okay, so
1: that that part I didn't understand. Watch the movie. Could you explain the difference with the hydrogen bomb?
0: That's fusion. fusion. Yeah. yeah. So
2: in the movie, they're discussing both types of bombs. They're discussing the fission bombs, which came first, mm-hmm. and then the fusion bombs that came later after the war. And that's the one that uh, a Teller was a big champion of. Um, that one is also, it was pretty cool to see Teller in there because if you read my thesis, which I don't recommend you do, but if you want to, <laughs> it's online. You know, one of the things I measured was related to uh, something that was predicted by Teller. And so it's named after him. I measured something called the gamow teller component of the Fiertz interference term of the neutron. It's a mouthful, but it's mentioned in the movie. I like that. I was like, hey, I know this So <laughs> I know those people. Was fusion
1: bombs uh, like on a reasonable timeline or would they not have completed that
2: well as they showed in the movie teller was trying to jump to that first he was always doing that and he was saying look this is going to make it work a lot more efficiently and oppenheimer addressed that and he's like okay get this and this is a mistake actually a lot of theorists and, and physicists make a lot of times sometimes they think the correct answer is the best answer or the most correct answer, or the most efficient. or And in reality, one of the things you know, engineers and actual entrepreneurs are really good at distinguishing is sometimes the enemy of perfection is good enough. If you get something done fast, that's 100 times more valuable than just the best solution. A lot of times, if you spend too much time in the lab, or, or even on paper, then you get stuck in this like, well, this is the best solution. So it has to be like this, but that could be 100 times harder. Anyway, uh, it wasn't 100 times harder, but it did take 10 more years to actually okay. make a hydrogen bomb. So Oppenheimer was correct that if you were trying to do it to win a war, making the hydrogen bomb would not have been very useful. In particular, hydrogen bomb is uh, a little misleading. Sometimes they think that it's like gets hot enough and then it's all powered by fusion afterwards. And the in the components of fusion, it's called hydrogen, but it's actually isotopes of hydrogens. It's, it's deuterium and tritium. Although they don't actually put tritium in the bomb, they put lithium six and deuterium. Lithium deuteride is the the material. It, the the tritium is made very quickly. What these two things actually do is it actually greatly amplifies the fission process in addition to setting off the fusion. So it's not nearly as simple as just one starts the other. It's actually the the two work together pretty well, where you get a much higher efficiency use of the fission core by having this fusion process next to it. And that's why extra energy is even coming from the fission itself. The little boy bomb was not very efficient at all. It wasted most of the uranium that went into it. You know, they simply couldn't keep it trapped fast enough that it all burned up because the second it starts to heat up, it's expanding and it very, very quickly moves away from critical mass. But if you have a fusion source with it, it can irradiate so quickly that all of it gets used up. It shoots neutrons back into the system. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I don't know if you've ever gotten to see it. There's a wonderful miniseries called The Heavy Water War that was put on by, I believe, like Swedish public television, but in conjunction with a number of nations public television. It's about, do you know The Heavy Water War?
2: I don't know the show, but I'm, I I know about the war.
1: Basically, there was uh, efforts by our team to sneak in and destroy their source of heavy water, the Germans, because mm-hmm. it would have aided their research. They went on skis at night under a full moon, and there was all sorts of subversion and, and, and subterfusion. Yeah, I mean,
2: it's, that's and, also a really great example of why it would have made no sense to go after a fusion first, because they were doing it wrong. The Germans were doing it wrong, because they're trying to collect tritium and mix deuterium and tritium. And... Tritium is very hard to find, mm-hmm. although not if you're off the coast of Japan this month, but yeah, no, it's still hard to find. <laughs> but they, yeah. They are releasing so tritium into the thing, although a very small amount. So I'm not trying right. to scare anybody, but
0: we don't true. want anybody woo-woo out here, but, you know. <laughs> yeah.
2: But it is related because a lot of people say, Well, why don't they just take the tritium out? Well, it's very hard to take tritium out of water. It's very diffuse. There's not very much of it. It does not last for a long time the way uranium does. It's not mm-hmm. from the creation of the earth, it's from the last 12 years. It's from the Mm -hmm. upper atmosphere, actually. It's created by cosmic rays hitting the atmosphere. So it's not, there's a very small amount of it. It's a rare material for the reason that it's not just around, you know, it doesn't sit there in the ground like an ore. So
0: the Germans were trying to sort of collect it and that was a dead end for them. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does C-Bar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for 3 months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar. Shampoo done right for you and the planet. So you talked about Little Boy and how it was extremely inefficient. I think they put like 64 kilograms of uh, U-235. Maybe at most a kilogram went off. So it was extremely, extremely inefficient.
1: By go off, that means only one kilogram of U-235 converted to U-238. or would it, would it have converted? or It
2: fizzes. It's called fission because yeah. it's yeah. split. Yeah, Yeah, so it converts into things like, you know, fission products like xenon and and krypton and and things like that. But that's one of the things that causes fallout is that it splits into two. And those two pieces left over are still radioactive for many years uh, in both nuclear power accidents and also when a bomb goes off. So yeah, so only a small percentage of it burned and so the rest of it just stayed as U235 and just sort of, you know, sat on the ground and didn't do anything. And that stuff's relatively harmless actually. U235 is not harmful as fallout. So yeah. it causes the yield to be really constrained.
0: What's yeah. the half-life of U235? Like billions of years. Yeah, something like that. It's still I there. I don't even memorize, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so that's what we dropped on Hiroshima, but that wasn't what we were testing for the Trinity test. That's a different uh, type of that's bomb. Right. That's like uh, an implosion bomb. Plutonium implosion bomb. So the yeah. reason that they used
2: the little boy one is because even though they knew it would not be efficient, they also knew the chances that it wouldn't work were incredibly low, yeah. near zero. You know, it wasn't 100%, but they knew that it. You know, they could still slam this thing into the other thing. That would be enough to detonate something, but they knew it wouldn't use it very well. The implosion was much more of an attempt to really get more of the output from that. And even that's not very efficient. And a really good demonstration of this is I mentioned modern day... Fusion bombs or even tactical bombs that are only fission. And while that bomb was, you saw it in the movie, was huge, like this big, a modern warhead, it's a cone roughly this big. The plutonium core is like the size of an apple or smaller. It's nowhere near as big as what they had. And the big reason for that is because as more weapons were developed over the time, they got much better at greatly increasing the efficiency that's and great because
1: those old ones are taking up a lot of room in my basement I'm, I know, I'm I so sick. when i have to move i have to hire people it's heavy right.
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. i mean the main reason for better or worse the reason this was important is because as as demonstrated in the movie really well beautifully actually the way they showed that Um, once these things were put onto icbms you don't want a giant thing the size of a volkswagen beetle to be <laughs> launched into the space because the odds that that's going to get there fast and it won't, you know, it will take a, ro- a Saturn V size rocket to launch becomes pretty impractical. Whereas also a lot of um, fuel
1: and that contributes to global warming,
2: yeah, yeah. You don't want to warm the planet right before you don't want, you want to warm the warm planet, the planet. When, you're, when,
1: you're, <laughs> when you're sending missiles to destroy whole cities, you definitely right. want to think about your carbon footprint,
2: <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely, that's a heavy payload, right? Right, so modern ICBMs on pretty much all countries that have them. There's multiple of these things usually called MERVs, uh, multi reentry vehicles. And these MERVs have very tiny components and yet
0: they have enormous yields. They can have yields up to 10 megatons. So really big. That's insane. So the implosion bomb that they made for the Trinity test and then for Nagasaki, that was multi-layered, but it's spherical. And on the outside, right, is like the layer of explosion. That creates a compression and then mm-hmm. beyond that they want to contain the neutrons it's like a neutron containment layer right what is and it then-
2: beryllium there's other neutron reflectors but beryllium and that's believe it or not the exact same type of reflector we use to trap neutrons in like the most recent experiment i worked on which measured the neutron decay symmetry we have little mirrors with a very thin coating of beryllium now you can't use that in a nuclear bomb because when they're traveling fast they need a lot of beryllium they have to have a large thick section of beryllium. But the kind we use are very cold. They're ultra cold, actually. So they bounce off of just the slightest amount of beryllium. But beryllium just happens to have something called a high neutron scattering cross section, which means that when a neutron runs into it, the chance that it will bounce off of it is very high. So it's sort of like, like silver is to light neutrons are to this. Huh. Stuff.
1: Does it momentarily
2: become a, an isotope or something? No. no, it's, it's called an elastic scattering cross section. So it's elastic because it bounces off of it and it does not absorb if it absorbed it'd be called an inelastic Mm cross-section that's the shielding layer you were saying yeah
0: then there's like the the layer of plutonium or the uranium and then in the layer there's a pusher that one's important too there's a thing called a pusher it was made of aluminum and it was basically like a big piston to make sure that that thing really squeezed actually yeah that's true and then and then in the middle portion was called the urchin Whenever things were compressed, it would then also shoot out more neutrons to increase the efficiency of the chain reaction.
2: There's a great scene where they're putting that thing in. They Mm -hmm. they show them lowering a thing in in a special container. They did have to be really careful with that thing because that thing could actually harm them if it broke or something like that because it could give off a lot of neutrons, which was his purpose. That thing's called a neutron initiator. It's a pretty clever design, too. What I loved about this movie is, well, I knew about this thing working. If you looked up at Wikipedia or something like 10 years ago or tried to find this in the internet, this wasn't just stuff you'd find. And I strongly encourage you to consider the fact that that's almost still certainly true of all the other components. So don't take anything I'm saying as a word. But the current declassified situation, is that thing's called a neutron initiator. And it had a polonium-210 source in it. Polonium is an alpha emitter. Mm -hmm. It had another metal that those alphas would hit. It would hit that metal, and then it would release a whole bunch of neutrons. They designed this thing so that once it collapsed, they would immediately mix, and it would just give off this huge burst of neutrons all at once. And that was the thing to sort of start the chain reaction even faster than the chain reaction could start itself. Right. <laughs> it had A lot of parts. I can assure you, the modern ones have even more parts. And I, like I, I said, like I wouldn't say like, oh, I looked it up on Wikipedia. I can design one now. That's that's not a really. You're
0: seeing what you've been allowed to see <laughs> so far. Yeah. The CIA is giving you side eye whenever you say that. They're like, yeah. <laughs> so we talked about the bombs. Obviously the main portion of the movie was about Los Alamos because we're talking about Oppenheimer. It's kind of through his lens, right? What about the supporting cast in terms of laboratories that were across the United States? The two that come to my mind is Oak Ridge. And then I guess it's called the Met Lab, but it was at the university of Chicago. Do you have any comments on that? Well, there that?
2: were, they were important because they weren't necessarily designing or, or doing the other stuff, but those places were really important for manufacturing the isotopes and things that were going to be actually used. Just like the bomb started off very efficient, this process started off very, very inefficient. For example, enriching uranium-235 from natural uranium, mostly separating from U-238, they used giant magnets because that's how chemists knew how to do it. Um, they were like, oh, you make a mass spectrometer. That's how you separate things of different mass. That's a really, really inefficient way to do it. In fact, this was so inefficient, these magnets were several stories tall. They ran out of copper, they couldn't use copper wire. So they had to dip into the silver stockpile of the United States. There was like a significant fraction of the United States of silver in these magnets. And this took a huge amount of electricity. It was, it was really the worst way to do this. On paper, it was at first, it was like, okay, that way will work. We know it will work because I built a little one and it works. Let's scale that up. Is this, is this to yeah, so separate isotopes? Yeah, separate U35 and u Now they use centrifuges, right? Yeah, although even more important is they don't really worry about it very much anymore. They do it for making fuel for power plants, but mm-hmm. almost no warheads, are new warheads, really use uranium anymore. Uranium itself is not even a very efficient thing to use, and it doesn't have as good a yield, and so pretty much all warheads use plutonium now. Yeah. And I think we were gonna talk about how plutonium is made. It's made in a much easier way that you couldn't do from the beginning. That's part of why they couldn't do this technique. That's why the two were racing in the beginning. They knew about how to do it, but there's a very specific reason why they couldn't just make a lot of plutonium in the beginning. Now it's, a, it's easy to make plutonium. Very, very easy.
1: Does plutonium work the same way and that there's a less stable isotope that decays faster and you have to No, it's made paint, right? in a totally
2: different way. So there's okay. no natural plutonium. So uranium is the last natural heavy element And it's the last natural one because from creation of the solar system four or five billion years ago, there was some sort of kilonova, the collision of neutron stars, and a huge amount of isotopes, heavy isotopes, gold, lead, uranium, all these things were made in this kilonova. Interestingly enough, Kip Thorne helped us record the first kilonova ever because LIGO, his gravitational wave detector that he helped make, could tell that there was a kilonova and could tell where in the sky it was and told all the world's telescopes to aim at that kilonova and watch it. And and so every single telescope spectrum that we have on Earth, including the Hubble telescope and all that, all aimed at this kilonova
1: do i still have time to rush over there and gather all the gold and uh, other valuable heavy elements no?
2: Damn. So, it made a lot of gold though it's it supposedly made something like uh i think they i saw like three earths worth of gold or something like, that. <laughs> Dang. like, like just in a, in a few seconds fell 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 yeah. 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 Is going down <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the market's flooding. <laughs> in that collision, in, in the kilonova that happened right before Earth was made, absolutely a lot of plutonium and way heavier stuff was made. All of the heavy stuff was made. The difference, though, is that uranium is the only one that has long enough that is as a on the orders of billions of years. So that stuff's been mm-hmm. slowly decaying away, but we're still here to see it. There's no long lived plutonium one. The longest is uh, like 10 million years or something like that. I don't oh. know.
1: To create plutonium, we're going to have to use fusion. Is that right?
2: No, oh. nope. The way you make it is that if you take uranium-238, which is normally useless for this sort of thing, it's not fissile, it doesn't have any other nice properties. Once you have a nuclear reaction going on, neutrons are flying everywhere. And if a neutron hits U-238, it fairly quickly turns into plutonium-239. That's called the breeder reaction. So if you've ever heard of breeder reactor, that's the reaction that happens. And this happens inside of all nuclear reactors. This is how Mm -hmm. North Korea got its plutonium. They tricked outside inspectors who were there to watch their, their reactor running. They kicked them out for several months in the 90s. And then when they came back, they said, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it. But what they had actually done is they had removed all the cores and they had processed all the plutonium out, and they had reinstalled it, and the uh, inspectors were not able to tell that they had done that until it was too late. So this is how you can get plutonium.
1: Does the neutron become a proton?
2: It can turn into one. It can decay on its own. It definitely does. Um,
1: Luke, wait, does plutonium have a higher uh, element number than you're Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. By how much? By two. By
0: yeah, two. it goes into Neptune. Plutonium. Yeah, they're in the order of the planets. Yeah.
2: Although you know what is, I think it's weird that plutonium never got kicked off the periodic table. Ooh. Yeah, That's sort of weird to me. Ooh. Somebody should just be like, plutonium's not an element. Not an element.
0: <laughs> Where, where's Neil deGrasse Tyson when we need him to uh, right. <laughs> discredit plutonium?
1: that process creates plutonium, and now you have some plutonium. How long is that plutonium going to stick around, and how dangerous is it to stand? It's right?
2: around for a long time. I don't remember its its half life. Sorry, I should have this memorized, but I don't it sits in uh, in the warhead for a long time
1: there's no need to enrich it it's it is
2: nope. so i mean yeah. there's processing and stuff but yeah.
1: now which is a slower process so that's
2: why i said at the time the movie showed it the two looked in competition now there's really no competition it is way cheaper and faster to make plutonium than it is to enrich uranium not that it's hard to enrich uranium but we kind of enriched it all already we actually have too much enriched uranium so
1: it is harder to make uranium when you have Stuxnet embedded into your uh, nuclear enrichment facility, I've heard. Yeah, yes,
2: you know? it is. That's right. It is. It's a real pain it in the butt. breaking, the, it, yep. Is
1: American Israeli spy intelligence services put the secret code into USB drives and right. shut down your uranium <laughs> enrichment facility. Always annoying when that happens. Yeah,
2: but
0: suddenly your enrichment things think they're playing Pokemon Go or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world.
1: And how does hydrogen compare to all that now? Let's say you're making a bomb. What would be the best way to go? Plutonium still, or is hydrogen fusion bomb better?
2: That's a good question, because they discuss that a lot in the movie also. I mean, they point this out. This is one of the reasons Oppenheimer was not super thrilled about hydrogen bombs, is although that they were really big, and this was really clearly made with the biggest of them, the Tsar bomb, which was roughly a 50 megaton bomb. I mean, the, the Tsar bomb blew up things... Even though it was on a fairly remote island in Russia, it caused destruction to buildings in towns that were nowhere near the test site. And so there really was a point where a hydrogen bomb doesn't really give you much usefulness except for deterrence of that your country will not exist because it goes way beyond blowing up military base or city even.
1: It sounds like bringing a grenade launcher to a shooting range.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: And this is why they're separated into two categories, strategic and tactical. And those are really good names because they have a strategic use, which is don't mess with us, or this is what's going to be left. But tactical use, like, nah, this is still for fighting an army, you know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) that's, that's really what that is. we live in a weird world now where this is not publicized a lot. I mean, it's not secret either, but our warheads you cannot tell necessarily what mode they're in at launch time and then even weirder we have weapons that can be given instructions to switch modes even after launch wow and what so a fun do, surprise if a warhead is some of our warheads are coming in you don't know if they will not detonate at all or if they will have one kiloton yield or if they could have up to 10 megaton yield you don't necessarily know it sounds and like they're uh, non-binary <laughs> and hopefully there's no uh bad malware installed on them because uh, oh, just, it's God. probably not gonna go Ooh, well. Jesus Christ, that's an alarming <laughs> thing to hear. Ooh. Oh, hopefully it goes it's with nuke and not playing Pokemon Go. So. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, oh I see yeah. one, you know. <laughs> oh oops.
1: <laughs> Sorry, one other thing about like the details because I really like hearing you explain this, Kevin. I'm really good at reading like half of a thing and then just not reading and then just thinking I know something. (laughs) I read something about nuclear bombs now having a much more contained radius. So when they talk about firing nukes at people, it's not necessarily that there'll be such a massive fallout. It'll hit its target and do a much more localized damage without causing decades of inhabitability.
2: That's the primary purpose, allegedly, of nuclear weapons at the moment. And this is fairly universal to both America and Russia, uh, that if anyone were to use a nuclear warhead in war in the future, they would use it much more for the purpose of taking out an immediate threat, like, like New York City. Like New <laughs> York, <Yeah, it's> like- <laughs> people are rude there. I went there one yeah. time. People are real jerks. But- <laughs> <laughs> you just say that because you live there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's if the U.S. launches on New York itself, which might happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not often. It's near zero, but it's not zero.
1: Matt Damon did such a good job with the team because it showed the mistranslation between the people who talk in numbers and people who talk yep. in, in, in military. <laughs> speak. Near zero means what it means. But.
0: Yeah, and I think he was talking about an atmospheric incident where you just have a continuated chain reaction. And that's something yeah, that, that uh, Compton brought up to, yeah. uh, to operate. Teller,
2: Teller also did this Yeah. And part of the reason because he understood how hydrogen bombs work. First of all, they're not called nuclear weapons, they're called thermonuclear weapons for a reason because while a nuclear uh, fission reaction can occur at zero temperature or very low temperature, meaning the neutrons have to have no energy, they can just be flying around at room temperature and they will still create the chain reaction and they'll very quickly get hot. In fact, the, the chain reaction actually stops it. That's one of the things that uh, slows down the efficiency. A thermonuclear reaction is very different where it only happens above a certain temperature. And when I say a certain temperature, I mean like you know yeah. millions to hundreds of millions of degrees. And that's why this only happens inside the sun, because the sun is very hot and very dense. It has to be even hotter inside of a warhead.
0: I think I can actually build upon that. The Trinity test, they did a calculation. I think it was Compton. Ah, sorry, Fermi, sorry, that was uh, the original
2: yeah. point. The ignition of the
0: atmosphere. Yeah,
2: so... The reason Teller was was interested is he was calculating what would you have to do to do it in a warhead. But at the same time, he was going like, well, never mind a warhead. What would you have to do if it was just around the warhead? You know, what is the thermonuclear ignition temperature of the air itself? Meaning the oxygen Mm -hmm. and nitrogen and carbon and hydrogen that are in the air. Mm -hmm. Because there is stuff and you can't ignite it. Let me chime in here.
1: Yeah. Uh, Oppenheimer was not the first movie where I heard of this concept of atmospheric ignition. Really? I heard it in the original Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> Mr. Fantastic warns human courts that if it gets too hot, he could ignite the atmosphere. And I oh, thought yeah. that was absolute bullshit when I saw <laughs> it in, in college on a red box DVD rental. And then I saw it again in this movie. I was like, oh, that wasn't bullshit. Someone actually kind of knew a bit about science when they wrote that
2: scene into the movie. Also, Christopher Nolan left an Easter egg. It is mentioned in the movie Tenet. There's a scene about Oppenheimer's reference. Oh, no. And uh, one character is, is talking to another and says, you know, Oppenheimer was worried that, that and uh, it showed that Christopher Nolan was already really excited about this idea, which he spoke about mm. all the time. He said that's why he made his, this movie was because of that weird idea that they had to sit there calculating like, well, if we do this, we win the war. But if we do this, we all die. You know, and he just found that it's, so fascinating. What is the maximum temperature
1: during a nuclear detonation?
0: If you actually use the Trinity test, it would have had to have been 10,000 times the temperature of the core of the sun.
2: Yeah, so the sun yeah. is not as hot and it's not like a constant thermonuclear bomb. The, you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> <are> you like- <laughs> yeah. that's right. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is the heat can't go anywhere. It's trapped. The sun is basically like a non-stop implosion bomb because gravity is the implosion force all the mm-hmm. time. So all it can do is push the sun out, which is why the sun is so big. I mean, well, it has a lot of mass, but I mean, it's also expanded to that size because of the heat, but it's constantly trying to push back in. So it doesn't need to be as hot for the process to happen. Also, this process is happening continuously over billions of years. It doesn't happen in a microsecond. And so it doesn't have this blowing itself apart problem. That's always the thing that cuts into the efficiency of a bomb is that if it blows up faster than it can burn its fuel, then you waste all the fuel that you put into it.
1: Hotter than the sun by a lot. Yeah. It's, it's only like over a very small area for a very small amount of time that hot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. I think they averaged it out to be like 20 times the, the current total of all of the warheads that we have combined, like all the thermonuclear warheads would, would create that sort of a, a reaction in the atmosphere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, oh right, yeah, exactly. All of them, yeah. like 20 times the total amount that we have on Earth. You know, we need the- to do a
1: Mythbusters episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. I I don't don't know the exact temperature. temperature. I'm guessing it's it's hundreds of billions degrees. You know, or trillions of degrees is really the issue.
1: But if that happened at one point, that reaction could ignite. It would be a chain reaction. Yeah, I mean, it would ignite. Mm -hmm. Uh, A little, a little in the weeds here. What is, what is that? What is the atmospheric ignition? What chemical process is that?
2: It's a nuclear process, thermal nuclear process. And this process does happen in stars. But just to give you an Mm. idea of why it's so near zero, this won't even happen in our sun. Our sun is not capable of igniting oxygen and nitrogen. Those mm-hmm. can ignite, but those ignite inside of a, of a star that's bigger than our sun. And that's called the CNO cycle. And it's very important because it's a big part of why we're here, why we exist. We were made in this process, the ignition of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon. It's called the CNO cycle because it, it goes in a cycle and it just creates more and more nitrogen, oxygen.
1: Ignition of nitrogen, carbon, and oxygen. That's the nucleus breaking
2: apart into well, it's a little more uh, complicated components, it it they bind together and mm-hmm. Produce things. It's a cycle because they spit some things out and then those things combine to make things. So one of the things they spit out is an alpha. And if they spit out three alphas, if you take three alphas and you combine them, you get a, a carbon-12 atom. And so that continues the process. And this yeah. happens inside of uh, larger stars. Our sun is not nope. big enough. It will, it will produce very little carbon, nitrogen oxygen, even by the time it's dead. The sun has to be even bigger. It has to crush it even more. There's not wow. enough density
0: inside the sun to really keep this process going. You can actually read the declassified calculation that these guys made during the uh, Manhattan Project. And what they did was they quantified a factor of safety. And if you're only looking at the fusion gains, which would be the denominator, and Kevin can expand on this a little bit more, but I think it's called the breaking radiation, uh, you get like a factor of safety of 1.6. But then whenever you incorporate temperature and then like the inverse Compton scattering, it's like a stupid, crazy high factor of safety. Yeah, near, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, near it's, it's, it's near zero. <laughs> but it's it's cool you can actually look up the, the calculation if if you ever hmm. wanted to do that. Yeah.
1: We're probably safe. It's probably fine. It's yeah. it's probably fine.
0: <laughs> we're good. Yeah. I mean, we're we're still here and they mm. they you know, they they were setting off hydrogen bombs after the Manhattan project, so
1: Do you watch Kruz Kazakhs? I do, yeah. yeah. They did what would happen if we set off <laughs> all of the nuclear warheads at once?
0: Uh-huh. Oh.
1: I it was like, on the extreme, of, not exactly this extreme, but like mammals might go extinct.
0: Oh, because like, being warm-blooded or?
1: It would be just crazy. The, the, no one would see the sky for many, many years. Yeah. The radiation. I mean, Kevin could speak more to it than I can, but like,
2: that was, it's think, crazy. That's just... I think would be fine. I, you know.
1: So you're a big nuclear proponent, Kevin. You think that there is a lot of um, hocus pocus around.
2: I think people went through a lot of effort to try and... Oh, yeah. scare people a lot not for bad reasons i think they tried to do it for good reason because i really do think it would be horrible like carl sagan used to really push the w- nuclear winner theory and i haven't seen super strong evidence for that but i mean i don't want people to not be scared of it but i yeah. think the fact that every major city on earth would disappear to me that's definitely its own deterrent i don't know yeah. why we need extra I, I don't know who's hiding outside i, I guess it's people are like i'm not moving to the city you know, like maybe they're yes. like, oh, fine, blow them up. I think it'd still be really bad if every major population yeah. center on Earth was destroyed or even half of them. I don't think uh, we'd be like, great. I mean, I just yeah. remember how much, how annoying it was when toilet paper stopped being sold in stores at the beginning of the pandemic. Imagine that times a million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. talk about the death of millions of people. You're like, think right. about the
1: supply chain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the supply chain would be a nightmare, dude. Uh, Kevin, I guess also what I was referring
1: to is, um, You think that there's a huge stigma against nuclear energy, which you think is clean. And even when there are whoopsie daisies, they're not as bad as the fracking contamination currently going on.
2: These two are totally related because a lot of activists Mm -hmm. and politicians, they tried to conflate the two. You know, like, oh, it's so bad to have a nuclear war, which it is, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then they were like, oh, we'll all go extinct from all the fallout. That's just really not true. Even from a nuclear warhead, which is the most biggest release of fallout you can have. Lots of people stood right next to these tests for decades. this This doesn't just kill everybody. It did a lot of damage to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but that's because people were directly under them. They don't ruin land forever. You can go to the Trinity site and you can go there. And yes, it's radioactive, but you don't get cancer from visiting it. And definitely it's true from even a nuclear accident. Like Very, very few people get sick, if any, from nuclear radiation, even when there's a fallout zone. Nowhere near thousands of people got cancer from Chernobyl and Chernobyl was an absolutely the worst nuclear power plant disaster there was. Yeah. And no one got hurt at all from Fukushima.
1: Yeah. I heard the stats on the even the dumping is is the water is it what they're dumping out.
2: Yeah, they're they dumping out water the, now. Yeah. yeah.
1: The concentration in that in that area of the water would have a lower radiation contamination rate than a banana at the grocery store. It's like yeah. the dilution would be enormous.
2: Tritium yeah. is a really good example. Tritium is radioactive, but just again, this is complicated because if you don't know the details of the nuclear physics, but it's a beta emitter of 18 kilovolts. It can't get through a single layer of cells, basically. Like yeah. it's it's one of the most harmless forms of radiation there is and it is natural it's in the water all the time anyway so it's it's just like it's not even a thing but that doesn't matter it's very hard to (laughs) convince people we should
1: just tell gwyneth paltrow that this stuff is good for you and then all these people would be like yeah we should have more of it i want to get good beta rays can you just remind me alpha beta and gamma
2: are what they were named in order discovery so alpha beta and gamma were discovered in, in those orders so alpha is a helium nucleus then comes beta which is an electron moving at uh, relativistic speeds, sometimes almost the speed of light. I'm um, usually about half the speed of light. And then uh, gamma is an actual photon, but with a really high energy, roughly the same energy as a beta, usually between zero and eight MEV, although mostly around one MEV. So one Man. mega electron volts. So that means it has a million times more energy than like a photon of UV light or you know, or two million times, three million times more energy than a photon of green light. So when a green light hits you and, you and you hits your eye and you see green, that's one millionth the amount of energy that's in a gamma. So that's why when a gamma comes, it can do damage. It can scatter things off. and That sounds yeah. very, very green. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> what kind of rays come
1: out of a nuclear, thermonuclear explosion? Pretty problem?
2: much all of them. <laughs> Pretty much all of them. Alpha, mm-hmm. beta, gamma, proton, and neutron radiation all come out. Now, neutron radiation is a really important part of it because... That doesn't travel very far away from the bomb, but internally that's what's making the reaction happen. You make multiple grams of neutrons in a microsecond inside of a nuclear explosion. When I say you make grams, of, it, I mean like because you free these neutrons, there's just suddenly free neutrons everywhere. That entire sphere is full of neutrons and they're participating in the chain reactions and they grow exponentially. You know, from the moment of detonation, they just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and grow until the, the explosion has expanded so far that then they finally start to go back down. And that pretty much determines the yield. So I'm asking
1: so much about the science. We, I'm trying to remind myself this is about the, the
2: movie. Yeah, I think you guys are just trying to get me on the watch list or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> State secrets. <laughs> That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's,
2: on, um, my next review panel like just i'm gonna be like oppenheimer sitting there imagining myself with no clothes on going like, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> like so did you seriously just do a podcast about this Kevin? you thought that was okay <laughs> any
1: inaccuracies in the movie that you saw
2: the not apple really. event uh oh with... yes yes the family um of oppenheimer did not appreciate that actually they made a comment about that they said there's no evidence that he tried to kill his TA. Mm-hmm. He did get in trouble for poisoning an apple, but the fact yeah. that it was actually cyanide, there's no there's evidence there. of that. That was uh, sort of pulled together. Niels Bohr was not the one who stopped it. I don't know actually yeah. what stopped it. Yeah, There's a potassium episode right? where he talks about the same incident. You can. Oh, uh, there's yeah. a little bit more information about that. Although even there, I, I'd say Derek didn't quite give Oppenheimer the benefit of the doubt that the family did. If they had thought he had actually tried to kill someone, I really do think they would have kicked him out of Cambridge. I don't think they would have said, OK, I know he's a rich guy and maybe he had some buildings in the works or something. But I don't think that killing your T.A. is something that most schools are. I know they weren't woke yet and stuff, but still, they just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, even back then, that was like was, there's was certain limits. <laughs>
1: Maybe it was x That's I, my I, guess: just...
2: is that it was probably something like a laxative. Probably. It was more a prank than anything. And, you know, pranks get out of control, but, you know, being accused of. <laughs> that that happened in you my know,
1: middle know. school, by the way. A kid dropped X-Lax in a teacher's uh, coffee. Whoa. It didn't melt. And she looked at <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? And the kids ratted out the kid who did it, and the teacher sued the parents.
0: <laughs> because he tried wow. to. Back back to the movie in terms of like, do you know why he tried to poison or or do whatever to, to black its apple? Is it just oh, because yeah, no, he wasn't? Because the guy was a jerk. No. That part I
2: totally sympathized with. I don't know if that's actually what happened, but he would do stuff like that. He was a bad experimentalist. He was clumsy. They showed that really well. That's totally true. He was mm-hmm. not good at experiment. My experience was very much the opposite where I wanted to do theory. And I was told by my experimental teacher, he was like, don't go study string theory. I know it looks cool right now. Trust me. And he said, be an experimentalist. And he said that to me because I'm good at experiment. So I had the opposite experience like that. Um, and, and, and as a result, I didn't try and kill my TA. So um, <laughs> that scene though, did speak to me. I don't mean the part about poisoning your teachers. The part that really spoke to me that was so funny is that he's this like this shy little, uh, grad student guy and he's so excited to go see Niels Bohr and everything and he goes in and the reason that scene was so cool is because a nearly identical scene happened to me except it wasn't Niels Bohr when I was in grad school, I snuck onto the set of Thor, which I was a science consultant for. And I snuck up and I nervously approached to meet Kenneth Brenna, who was the director of Thor, who was playing Niels Bohr. And so I had oh. this scene that was like nearly, i dub. like, this is like when wow. I was in grad school and I tried to go meet Kenneth Brenna, except he wasn't pretending to be someone else. Well, he's pretending to be a director, but I mean, he was, he was basically himself. So that was really cool, man. I love seeing oh, that. Scene.
0: And I didn't even try and kill anyone. Yeah, I think that was really the only thing that stood out to me in terms of like what was off in the movie. I think it was documented extremely well. How did you feel about Feynman in this movie? Play? Oh, that no, was
2: great. They showed some other cool thing. Like they showed him playing bongos. And that story, I love that. Yeah, and that story about him not wearing glasses is true. Yeah. He did the calculation. He was like, no, that's pretty much the damage comes from UV and, and I'm fine. And so he sat behind just regular glass and he got to see it. He's one of two people who got to see it the first time with their bare eyes. The other guy dropped his glasses. So. Wow.
1: <laughs> You've said in the past that Feynman is like your number one quantum physicist.
2: Yeah, I think he's the best physicist. That's my personal take. Oh, but, yeah, okay. But, you know, I don't like to make lists, you know. I got.
1: I read Shirley, you're joking at your advice. And Feynman is a guy who is. It's it's easy to miss how good of a scientist he was because he's also such an interesting, funny guy. Mm -hmm. who happens to be the greatest physicist of all time and what i noticed this movie was a lot of these guys were like pretty cool they had Mm -hmm. a lot of sex with women who weren't their wives they were sociable they were like you know the life of the party they were into political movements it was these people weren't just one kind of smart they Mm -hmm. seemed to be just rather brilliant people in a lot of different categories
0: so i have a question for you guys as like a a final send-off What is your overall take on this statement where Oppenheimer, I guess, famously stated that, like, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. What is your final take with Oppenheimer and how he handled it? And uh, to the comments of people that say what he did was extremely evil or what other people were saying, it was extremely heroic. What are what are your comments, Matt? What do you got?
1: This is one place where I feel like a bit of like a, a religious fervor. And that sometimes we need to pursue science we need to pursue curiosity sometimes there's a negative fallout from that and sometimes really bad and this was an example where it was used for very very evil things but overall curiosity and the bold pursuit of science leads to the betterment of humanity and we should not be afraid to move forward knowing there will be steps backward and there will be wicked characters uh, overall the more we know the more we explore the better we will be as uh, a human race
2: i have a f- fairly religious take on it also i see a little bit of a metaphor before the the first time that we explored getting knowledge it was also something roughly the size of an apple knowledge can be viewed as as a weapon or an evil thing and it always can be but it can also be a thing that creates love and creates procreation i think that was also demonstrated in the movie very well Um, But, you know, I think it's important to remember, humans did not invent fission, they did not invent the nucleus, they did not invent nuclear power, these are things that exist, God invented those things, those things exist, and humans just discovered it, and the race in the movie was to discover it first, it was not to invent something that wasn't there already. We're in a similar position now where we have, we know that it's there and you can't unknow something. And you can use it to be good or you can use it to be bad. And we're given lots and lots of opportunities to use it to be good.
0: I agree with that. Don't smelt the iron ore because you can potentially use or use it to make a sword. Countless examples. Well, guys, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been absolutely fantastic. Hopefully we brought you know some really interesting and, I guess, awesome perspectives to the Oppenheimer movie. And I'm glad that I was able to, uh, to talk to you guys about it. So thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for your time. Yeah,
0: Yeah. thanks for having me. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank Kevin and Matt for sharing their movie opinions, expertise, and experiences with regards to Oppenheimer, physics, history, and much more. If you want to connect and see more of their content, feel free to head to my website, everythingsteam.org, and go to this episode's page for their links. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont. Clips that you'll see on social media were created by our new intern, Molly Chakery. And our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against those algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on our socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and just fun Steam content. You can search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Threads, and Facebook to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious.